Welcome, ladies, to the Real Estate Investor Show, providing inspiration, strategies, and insight to empower women investors to live balanced and financially free lives. Now, here are your co-hosts, Liz and Andressa. So in today's episode, ladies, we have Maya Corbett. She's a CPA, a mother, and has over a decade of experience teaching parents how to empower their kids to become financially independent. What I think you're going to get so much from today's episode is not only the tactics on how to do that, but actually how to think and really set yourself up for success on what you actually value as a parent. Absolutely. And many of those things are default for us as adults, right? So she shared, for example, allowance is a big topic. She shared four different ways that parents can utilize allowance to teach their kids how to manage money. This is a great episode for you. If you're a parent or looking to become a parent, this is a must watch. Before we get into Maya's story, let's hear a word from our sponsors. Interest rates are sky high in 2023, and buying a rental property means you could get stuck with an 8, 9, or 10% mortgage rate. But what about a 2.99% rate with Rent to Retirement? Rent to Retirement has 2.99% seller financing available on turnkey properties. You heard that right. That's a seller financed 2.99% interest rate with an average cash flow of over $900 per month. Plus, They've got options where you can put as little as 5% down with no PMI. As the nation's leading turnkey investment company, Rent to Retirement helps investors build headache-free, high cash flow rental portfolios. And since their properties are fully turnkey, newly built or renovated, leased and managed, anyone can invest, even those who aren't into landlording. So what are you waiting for? This 2.99% rate deal won't last long. To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com or text REI to 33777. Again, text REI to 33777. Hey guys, it's Liz. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to remind you that time is running out and you have four weeks left to get your ticket to InvestorCon 2024, the number one premier conference for women in real estate. It's happening from June 2nd to 4th in Austin, Texas. To learn more and to get your tickets, Visit investhercon.com today and use the code 100podcast to get $100 off your ticket. That's investhercon.com and use the promo code 100podcast to get $100 off your ticket. Welcome back, everyone. This is Liz. And this is Andressa. Welcome back to the Real Estate Invest Her Show where our mission is to empower women to live a financially free and balanced life on their own terms. Uh, that's really important to us because you're not living someone else's life, you're living your own life. And we want you to do that however you choose. We're excited to have Maya Corbett with us today. We're gonna be talking about money and kids and just setting your kids up for success when it comes to investing and all the things that we care so much about as real estate investors. So thanks for being on, Maya. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate your time and we appreciate this topic because it's all about the next generation, right? <laughs> exactly. Yes. Awesome. Awesome. So we we like to kick it off really deep. We go deep here. <laughs> what lesson has taken you the longest to learn, Maya? What lesson uh, for me or for kids? For you. For me. Oh, goodness. I think it's the lesson of 
thinking more like a business owner or owner rather than an employee or a consumer. I believe that, you know, a lot of us grow up with this mentality and, you know, we're surrounded, you know, we live in this consumer oriented society where we're constantly bombarded and encouraged to be a consumer. But instead, you know, what I'm trying to teach my kids and myself is to be an owner through investing. When we go through school, we're really educated to become good employees rather than uh, business owners. So for me, I have a business now and, you know, I'm a CPA, but a lot of times people think, oh, this is what you learned in school. I didn't learn in school how to be a business owner. So it's a hard lesson. It's something that I keep learning every day. There are a lot of new challenges, but it's been definitely rewarding so far. So when you were 15 years old, you and your family moved from Bosnia to Canada with $50 and two suitcases. Right. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. It's just like unbelievable after losing everything in the war. So I know your mission and what you're all about teaching the kids how to be savvy adults. But I'm going to ask you a question. What did you learn from your parents that you still carry with you about money? So I obviously, you know, starting from scratch and losing everything in the war, we had to make sure we can make our ends meet. And we lived in government shelters and government housing. And it really was my mom that managed our household bills and helped us kind of make ends meet. And it wasn't that she really talked to me so much, but it was more, you know, kids learn a lot by observing. So it was just kind of watching how she used coupons, how she price compared and the way she shopped. And you know, she cooked every day just because obviously it was cheaper. We didn't go to restaurants. And, you know, it was kind of like when things broke down, we didn't just go out and buy a brand new thing to replace it. We would try to fix it. It was little things like sometimes people don't believe us. You know, we actually did this, but we would pick up things from the garbage. <laughs> you know, if somebody threw out a chair, which was perfectly usable chair, we would, you know, grab it, clean it up and use it in our home as furniture. Right. But you know, one thing or a couple of things that my parents did not teach me, and I think a lot of it has to do with being an immigrant, and maybe a lot of immigrants, if they're listening to this show, can relate to, is where we come from. So I come from a communist-oriented society. Investing was not in our realm. My parents didn't know anything about investing. They also didn't know anything about credit cards, right? So those were the things that they couldn't teach me. Those were the things that I had to learn on my own. Passive income as well, like they didn't know anything about passive income. You know, again, they raised me as an employee. It was kind of like the message was, you know, go to school, get good grades, get into the best university, get good grades, get into, you know, get a best job possible, work until you retire. So that was the message, which was not necessarily a bad message because that helped me to where I am now. But I think the big part of what my mom taught me was like budgeting and being savvy with my money and being a good, like smart spender. That experience was incredibly powerful for you. And then you have this incredible passion now to teach children about financial literacy. So let's let's jump in. So I think a lot of women listening and men listening, we're investing, we're busy in the business, so to speak, but sometimes we forget to teach these lessons to our kids, right? And we're so focused on our, on our own world. So it's really important to be intentional as we teach and share to your point, whether they're getting it from observing or specific questions. So let's talk a little bit about 
you know, you you had said something in one of the questions in, in prep we had done with you is about explaining money to kids in a way that resonates with them. And Justin and I just went to a, a really great training around jargon we use when we say syndication or we say cap rate. And we use these so many big words in our investing world and it, it overwhelms people sometimes. So I'm curious in terms of how how have you been able to, the work you've done, you know, explain concepts that are critical. What are those concepts and how to do it in a way that kids can really get it versus it being too, you know, too much jargon. Right. So sometimes it's also not about jargon. Sometimes it is about jargon, but sometimes, you know, we, we're in circumstances where something happens and, you know, we use catchphrases that a lot of other parents use like, oh, I can't afford that. Well, you know, chances are that most of us can afford some things that let's say kids are asking us to buy, but it's rephrasing that and saying maybe this is not something that we need right now. Maybe, you know, if a child is asking for a particular toy, it's kind of like, well, you have so many of these toys, you don't really need another one. You know, sometimes parents do those like little white lies and say, oh, I forgot my wallet, right? And instead of saying that, it's kind of like, well, you know what? I have my wallet on me right now, but I really don't think this is a good purchase. Here's a reason why. Or, you know what? Like maybe if you really cannot afford something, maybe, you know, the better way of saying it would be like, I can't afford it or we cannot afford it yet, but let's make a plan and figure out how we can afford it. So what are we going to do? How are we going to earn money towards it and save it so that we can actually afford that? And then when it comes to jargon, I think it's really important to speak with kids at their level. And you know what? Like a lot of times parents, uh, you know, say to me, well, I don't know how to explain something. Every parent, when you're talking to your child, you know what level they're at. So obviously, like you wouldn't be explaining investing to somebody who's four or five years old. But, you know, you as a parent know that they're capable of understanding certain concepts like needs and wants. Like this is, for example, this is one concept that I, you know, go to schools and I teach to kindergartens and, you know, ages four and five, they understand that. They understand that needs are for survival and wants are just nice to have. And so, you know, when we talk to them, we just need to kind of stoop to their level and, and talk, trying not to use these big words, but just explain it in a way that the kids would understand and let them, you know, allow them to ask questions or you can even ask them, do you have any questions? And sometimes they don't, you know, sometimes, you know, they'll just be like, okay, that's enough. And at that point, you, we really should stop explaining because we don't want to overwhelm them. And I would say another thing too, is that even if you explain something once, that doesn't mean that they got it the first time. I know with my own children, I've had some discussions 10, 20 times and I'm kind of like, man, we discussed this. Like, don't you remember yeah. And they're just like, you know, I think you went in one ear, went out the other. And like, that's that's how it is. I, I, I want to emphasize something that you're saying in terms of the, the way of being, right? Instead of saying, oh, I lost my wallet and say, well, you have a Apple Watch or you have your your wallet and your phone, don't you? Like, I've seen you buy, right? So that like, I think that that awareness for for all of us and Instead, instead of just saying cannot afford or this is too expensive or it's not, it's not your birthday. Same thing as an employee. And I don't want to offend anybody with those, but it sounds like an employee mindset when, when somebody says, 
I cannot afford this, not your birthday, or pick one. And the way that I'm thinking here as I process this, as I'm listening to you, is like, how can we insert an abundant mentality on the child so they can become adults that understand that how the benefits are living abundant life versus a scarcity life, but the being, being in abundance. Something happened to my son Lorenzo and I. I said to him after his communion, say, listen, I'm going to take you to a candy shop and you can pick whatever you want. That was a test because I said, let's see if this kid's going to go freaking crazy there and get all the freaking candies or what he's going to do, right? And then we went to the candy shop. I was like mesmerized by all the different types of candies that there was there. There was abundance of candies and different types of things. And I said, okay, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, right? Go ahead. And then he got one thing and then he got two things. And then he looked at me and said, okay, those two things. And then I said, don't too, I told you, you can get whatever you want. He's like, yeah, those two things here. And then I said, all right, there's nothing else I want because I kind of want those things, right? So I think that the relationship that I'm making is that I'm talking abundance, so it's not scarcity. He doesn't need to eat all of it and and have this like, oh, let me just take this opportunity here because God knows when I'm going to have another one. And just being peace. I don't know if that's making sense to, to you, what I'm saying in terms of this abundant mentality. Yeah, I, I definitely does. I think uh, a lot of us were not raised with the abundant mentality. So I actually think, you know, and I always say this in my workshops to parents, what we need to work on first in order to teach our kids the abundant mentality, we need to have it ourselves. And so we have to do some work on us before we can teach our kids because inadvertently we will pass on some of our own scarcity mindset onto them without even like realizing that's what we're doing. So a lot of times, you know, I tell people to think about three things, like what did they hear about money when they were growing up? What did they see? And did any emotional incidents occur regarding money? Like, did they see their parents fight? Or what kind of environment they lived in? What kind of community? You know, was everybody around them poor, pinching pennies and saying, you know, money's hard to come by. Man, I'm always broke. And those things stay with us. And I know personally for me, yes, I'm teaching money to kids and helping parents teach kids about money. And yes, I'm in a great place right now financially, but I still struggle with some of my own money mindsets because of how I grew up. You know, it's hard for me to spend money and be abundant and kind of like not, you know, just to say, oh, like there's going to be more. I don't need to hoard this. I can let go and money is just going to flow. And I truly believe in that. I, I, Well, I think I believe in it, right? But I'm still doing the mental work around sure. it. And I think when we do that, I think it's easier to have our money dialogue with our children, because I really believe money should not be taboo. So then we can talk about money freely, without reservation, without worry. You know, all of that is really connected. 
You're trying to close on your next rental, so why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. Modern investors deserve better. They deserve Steadily.com. At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. So whether you've got a single family, short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. Top real estate investors love to talk about how they save so much on taxes. But how are they able to build rental property empires while skirting Uncle Sam? 1031 Exchanges. 1031 exchanges allow you to defer capital gains taxes while you sell an investment property, exchanging your old property for a bigger, better one and avoiding the tax man while you do it. And that's where First American Exchange Company comes in. They're the leaders in 1031 exchanges. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting, First American Exchange can help you with simple rental property exchanges, complex commercial real estate investments, reverse exchanges, and more. Don't let your taxes eat into your profits. Visit First American Exchange Company at firstexchange.com. Or call them at 800-556-2520. That's firstexchange.com or 800-556-2520. Keep your money in your pocket and propel your portfolio further at firstexchange.com. First American Exchange Company does not provide tax or legal advice. Consult your financial, real estate, tax, or legal advisor about your circumstances. First American Exchange Company. Safe, smart, secure. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know a thing about how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a hospitality-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, Vacasa earns homeowners an average of 20% more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa is always thinking of ways to simplify the vacation home owning experience by putting your home to work for you. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home, work with the reliable property manager, and finally have peace of mind, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. That's vacasa.com slash biggerpockets. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I love that. So in terms of allowance, I love this topic because I think there's so many different opinions about allowance, right? And we all know the value of allowance, but you actually talk about four types of allowance methods, which I really want to drill down because, you know, the question becomes, are we setting our kids up for success with with the concept of, of allowance, right? Because I've actually heard a couple of different perspectives. So I'd love to get your perspective on allowance and then those four methods and how do we set our kids up for the most success and, and how do they treat their money? Right. So it's funny, actually, because allowance, believe it or not, has been like this big point of discussion, sometimes even arguments amongst parents. I witnessed it over the last 11 years on my Instagram page, like <laughs> in the workshops I've hosted. And it all led me to believe that when it comes to allowance, there's no one-fit-all approach. We all parent differently. Uh, we all have parent based on our family values. Same is with money. We all need to be teaching about money based on our family values, what it is that we believe in and whatever works best for our family. So because of that, I've actually developed a framework 
that helps parents kind of like come up with their own personalized money teaching plan. And part of that framework is allowance. And that's why I see there are four different allowance methods. And if it's okay with you, I would like to share what those are. And it's really up to the parents to pick the one that works best for them. And even if they pick one and that doesn't work, that doesn't mean that you failed. A lot of times people tell me, oh, I failed. I'm like, no, 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 you didn't fail. It just means that doesn't work. You got to try something different and keep trying until you figure it out. The great thing about allowance and the reason why I love allowance is because allowance is really a tool, a tool that teaches our kids how to manage money. A lot of times people think of allowance as a gift because, you know, when we're given money, it's kind of like, oh, somebody's giving us a gift. But in this case, allowance is a tool and it helps kids learn how to manage money when dollar values are low and the stakes are not high. So even if they make mistakes with $10, $20, even if it's 100 it's not a big deal because uh, one day when they graduate from college and they have a six-figure, let's say, salary job and they, you never taught them about how to manage money, they can make more costly mistakes. We want to give them an opportunity to practice making these mistakes now when it's not a big deal and they can learn from those mistakes. And also when money, you know, transfers hands, it kind of, you know, it goes from you onto them. They now have this power over, the, over this money and they make different purchasing decisions and they treat this money differently than they would treat your money. So when, you know, we are in control of the money, they don't know, let's say we're in a store and they're asking us to buy them a toy or candy. They don't know how much money you have at your disposal. They don't know what your budget is. They have no clue. Can they buy, you know, Andressa was saying like how much, you know, you can buy all this candy. Like imagine if she said, okay, we're going to the candy store and, you know, her son would be like, okay, well, how much can I spend? Like, how much do you have? Like, what's the budget for today? Like, they just, they don't know these things. They just, yeah. a lot of kids think, you know, you have this credit card that you can tap or swipe or whatever, and it's unlimited. But when they have that money, especially the beginning, when you give them that cash money, it's better to give cash when they're little, just so they can see it. And then they see that money leaving, they understand, okay, this is going to go. And once it's gone, it's gone. Oh, um, that's an interesting point, though, because then the credit card is still there, right? So it doesn't have any effect per se. But even like coins and, and, and money, I love that. Would you mind breaking down the four types that you, you mentioned? Because I think we are so curious about it. We might be doing it wrong, right? Yeah, no, no, for, no, there's no wrong. There is no wrong. <laughs> right, right for our family, wrong for the other families, just like this narrative. <laughs> yeah, no. So the first allowance method is allowance that's tied to chores. So obviously the parents pay for chores. If the child doesn't do the chores, uh, the parents do not pay the child any money. And parents who actually support this allowance method want their child to, you know, understand that they have to work hard for their money, that money doesn't grow in trees. And, you know, the second allowance method is the one that's not tied to chores. So in this case, parents give allowance regardless of whether or not the child completes the chores because they believe the money is a teaching tool. And the child is supposed to learn by managing this money. Now, if the child, like they still believe that, you know, child should be doing chores and that they should be contributing to the household. And they also believe that, you know, one day when the child grows up, nobody's going to make their bed for them. Or like if they make their bed for, if they make their own bed or if they set the table for dinner, nobody's going to pay them any money. So it's kind of like, well, you better get used to doing these things because no one's going to pay you for them. And uh, what happens is that 
if these kids, for example, don't do these chores that are expected to be done because they're part of a family unit, the parents will not take away the money, but they will take away other privileges like play dates, screen time, and so on. The third allowance method is the hybrid method. So it's the mix of the first two. And what these parents like to do is give their kids a set amount of money every week or biweekly, however they choose. And that's not tied to chores. But the kids have an opportunity to earn money for some other chores. And again, like there's no right or wrong, but I will share what I use with my kids. They're older now. They're teenagers. They don't get allowance anymore. But they had opportunities to earn money. So they could wash our cars, which is essentially what my husband and I did. We replaced certain tasks that we would pay somebody else to do. We gave our kids an opportunity to do them. So instead of going through the car wash, we would ask our kids, hey, do you want to earn 10 bucks, 12 bucks, whatever, by washing our car? Another example was shredding confidential documents. Instead of taking them to a place where they get shredded, you know, they had an opportunity to do that for us. And then the fourth allowance method is really, it's no allowance at all. Some parents believe they should not be giving allowance, and that's okay. However, with those parents, what I encourage them to do is two things. One is to set a stellar example how money should be managed because kids observe everything we do. So you really want to, you know, show them how, you know, you're, let's say you're managing your household budget, how you're paying your credit cards on time, uh, all those things. But I also encourage these parents to periodically give children some opportunities where these children can manage money on their own. And those opportunities would be, for example, a child's birthday. And this is, again, something that I've done with my own kids, even as as young as like my daughter was eight years old. So we created a birthday budget and she was in charge of it. So I said, this is how much money you have and you're going to decide what you're going to spend it on. And so I created a budget in Excel and I entered some formulas. So it was actually really easy mathematically to see like, oh, if we put in pizza, this is what, you know, how much money is left over. If you put in cake, this is how much money is left over. Mm -hmm. And it was really a great experience for her because she realized that every decision she made had an impact on her bottom line. And I said to her, I said, if there's any money left over, you can keep it. And it was really sweet to see because, you know, she cut out the cake. She was like, instead of buying a cake, we're going to make it at home because it's cheaper. I think she decided to have birthday at home because it was cheaper. (laughs) And then some of the money that she saved, it was really sweet because she didn't want to keep it. She wanted to buy those loot bags, the gift bags. I actually hate those things. But, you know, it was her birthday, her choice. She was managing this money and she stayed within the budget. So it was a great learning experience. And other opportunities like that would be like back to school shopping or if the kids, you know, go for an overnight trip, maybe with their school or a camp. You know, you give them a certain amount of money to manage. And instead of giving that money, maybe to the camp counselor or teacher, you give it directly to the child. And yes, it's scary, right? But if they make any mistakes in mismanaging that money, it's kind of like, well, it's better they do it now when it's in this controlled environment rather than later on. I love that. I love that. You know, it's it's interesting, right? Because as of course, you're sharing all four of these. I'm like, where am I going to fall, right? What, what are we doing, <laughs> right? It's all about us. I love that you said all four of these because I, you start to say, where did you grow up? There's two pieces to this. Where did you grow up? Which one, if, if you fell in one of these, and what are you choosing now with your own kids? So for me, allowance and chores were tied to each other. You know, so that hardworking money, you know, you work hard for money, right? That's, that's how it is. 
we've made a very considerable effort to shift that a bit. So I don't tie chores to allowance. I do it. I do number three with with my kids, and then they can earn money for other chores. But I love what you're saying about the amount of money for like birthday parties or something. They don't even know sometimes what these things cost, and would they choose to do what I chose for them, or we choose for them? I think that's a really great a great addition. Where do you fall, Andressa? I'm thinking here because I'm struggling, right? I don't want my child to think that he needs to do something himself in order to be right to receive money because then he's going to have a problem delegating later on in life. And I don't want that. And I don't want him to say, okay, for this hour, this time. So I don't want that. But I also don't want the number two because then I don't want to raise an entitled child that does not understand that he needs to earn that. I think what we have here is established agreement that he's part of a community and it's part of his contribution to do certain things. Yeah. And I just give him money in special occasions, but I think that what I'm learning here is that I want him to start managing it. So I might transition to a recurring independently of, of the, the situation and put him in situations where, well, let's go to the candy store back again, but this time you're going to use your own money just to see it, how he's going to do with that part. He might buy a lollipop only or something. <laughs> you know, I was going to mention, a lot of people don't know this, but if you ever have time and want to Google Smithsonian Magazine and in their search bar, you can put in a Rockefeller Allowance Agreement. So back in 1920s or 1930s, John Rockefeller had an allowance agreement with his son. And I mean, we don't, yeah, I don't suggest, you know, that every parent has an agreement with their child, but it could be even verbal agreement. But the idea behind it was that he was giving his son a certain amount of money and there were requirements as to like what his son had to do with that money. And it's kind of like what Andressa is saying, like the allowance is really a tool. So like we as parents, we have to decide what do we want to accomplish with that? What are the values and lessons that we want our kids to learn? You know, John Rockefeller, I mean, he was at that time, he was one of the wealthiest men in the world. And if he was thinking like this, right, obviously the rest of us should be too. So we need to identify, okay, what is it that, you know, what kind of child do we want to raise, you know, by the time they're 18? Like, how do we want them to manage money? How do we want them to think about money? Mm-hmm. I really love what Andressa was saying about, you know, is he going to have trouble delegating later on? I think that's probably one of the reasons why I have trouble delegating, right? Because I'm used to like, I know I have to work so hard for my money and I have to do it. So those are very valid considerations. Yeah. And it takes real intention to do that versus I've been told to give my kids an allowance and this is what it means versus the thoughtfulness and the intentionality around it. So to get really clear, what are the values? I love what you're saying. They're 18 years old. Like answer this question. They're 18 years old. What values and lessons do I want them to have about money? And then how do I want them to think about money? If we get really clear as parents, right, on those answers, then we'll know very clearly what we need to do, the action, right? The the strategy or, you know, so I I don't think most people are doing that. They're doing it the other way, right? There, there's no intentionality around it. It's just here's some money and here's an allowance and hopefully they'll get some good lessons here. So Maya, this is great. Real tangible pieces that uh, some homework, right? Some actions we can take. 
So we set our kids up for success. Where can uh, the ladies listening learn more about you, Maya? Yeah, so I'm often on Instagram. I post uh, tips and tools for parents every day. My Instagram handle is teach.kids.money. There are a lot of imposters out there, so just make sure you follow the right account. So it's teach.kids.money. And uh, I have a book coming out on teaching kids how to invest. It's called From Piggy Banks to Stocks, The Ultimate Guide for a Young Investor. So that's going to be coming up soon, and I'll be posting about that on my Instagram account. Awesome. That's awesome. All this information you guys can find on our show notes. Now we're going to transition to our fabulous three questions. And the number one is, Maya, what's the most powerful book you ever read? I have to say for me, it's The Atomic Habits by James Clear. Just love that book. I don't know, on some deep level, it really resonated with me. And I even, it's not a quote from the book, but I have a note here in my office and it says, small steps lead to big results. So, you know, as long as we're doing these like small incremental steps and changing whatever it is that we want to change, we can get to wherever we need to get. And I feel like that's been the story of my life. And I, you know, sometimes when I'm having a bad day, I like to remind myself of that. I'm like, I don't need to make any big steps today. I just need to make a tiny little step in that direction and it's okay. <laughs> Absolutely. What's the most powerful routine that you do to create a financially free and balanced life? Whatever balance means to you. I like automating things. I think, you know, just automating, for example, uh, automating my finances. So as soon as the money comes in, to have a certain portion of the money go directly into my investment account. So that way it's kind of like it's I forget about it and whatever money is left over, it's there to pay the bills and for fun. But the automation, I find it helps me. It just it, it eases the burden. And I find like the more automation I have, it's better organized and I can focus on other things that are even more important than that. Last question, which woman, famous or not, has inspired you the most? I would say my mom. I mean, she's a fighter. She, uh, you know, back in Bosnia, she was a chemical engineer. And so she came here and she had to start from scratch. She didn't know English. She worked in a donut shop and she fought so hard. She worked night shifts just to like help us make ends meet. And, uh, you know, she is at a place now where I'm like, I look at her and I'm like, I can't believe that she's even accomplished what she has. Uh, in the last 28 years that we've been here. So she is really inspiring to me. That's great. Maya, thank you so much for being on our show. Thanks for all your tips and, and ideas to help that next generation and help ourselves, right? So, so thank you for uh, being on today. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a pleasure. Thanks a lot, Maya. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to receive updates on our next interviews, go to our website, therealestateinvestor.com. There, you can subscribe to our show, become part of our investor community, and get updates on upcoming episodes. If you like our show, please share it with other women who would benefit. And don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes. We'd really appreciate it. And as always, we encourage you to take one action as a result of today's show and put it into motion so you can live both a financially free and balanced life. Thanks for spending time with us. Ciao.